Tonight is uh, April 14th, Wednesday night, and our topic this evening is going to be weed and feed. This is one of those things that most people wouldn't consider to be quote-unquote deep things of God. It doesn't require you to understand the seals in the book of Revelation or name the colored horses in the sixth chapter or anything like that. And yet, if you can master this topic, and I'm preaching here as one who has not yet mastered it, if you can master it, you'd be the most mature Christian of anybody that I know. So from that standpoint, this is as deep as it absolutely can get. Weed and feed is a product that's intended to be sown into your field, your yard, in order that weeds die and the healthy plants live in order that they would produce their fruit, whether that's green blades of grass or apples on a tree or whatever it might be. In many ways, God's Word whether it's written or spoken to you, however God is getting his word to you, is exactly like that. Y'all turn with me to Mark 4. We'll get to a familiar scripture here, and hopefully this will begin to make sense. You remember not long ago, one of the messages that we got that was fun and I thought was fairly powerful was nobody has authority from God to tear you down. The only authority God has given anybody, even the Apostle Paul, who was an apostle to all of the Gentile church, he only had authority to build up, not tear down. Much of our time, unfortunately, is spent tearing people down. When the Word intended for us to only speak that which was edifying, and I don't know why we find ourselves wrapped up in this, but as we begin to recognize it and we understand what motivates it, how harmful it is to the kingdom, then we can learn to let the Word of God be weed and feed in our life, for it to feed our spirit and weed out the things that ought not be there. And Mark 4, you're used to this parable being spoken about salvation, and and it is. But I want to see if I can give you a little new twist on it tonight. Everybody in Mark 4, 1? It says, Again Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. In his teaching, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow a seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone with the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables, he told them, The secrets of the kingdom have been given to you. Isn't it good tonight to be in that group? You could hear these things and they'd just be words to you. You could hear a parable and think, Wow, that's a wise saying among many others. It could be like a fortune cookie to you. But instead, you are included in the group that God is revealing the mysteries of His kingdom to. You're uh, somebody who has submitted their life to God for discipline, for training, and for teaching. A disciple. For the purpose of being sent 
with his word out to other people. That's our purpose, to be ambassadors of the message of reconciliation. Well, because of that, he is entrusting you with the secrets of the kingdom of God. And listen to what he says this means. The secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Then you know about the fourth one that does well. The point of the parable, as far as the weeds were concerned, was that things entered into a person's life that made the word unfruitful. When we think about this, we usually only think of the fourth person being saved, the one with the good soil that produced crops 30, 60, and 100 fold. God's desire in sowing the word was that everyone produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. The first group doesn't get saved. Before the, the word is able to take root in their heart, the devil snatches it away. But the second group, the plant begins to grow. It begins to stretch out its roots and rise towards the heavens. This is just like somebody who's begun their Christian walk. But because of a lack of depth, a lack of teaching in the Word, a lack of understanding, truthfully, somebody who really did not count the cost. When persecution came, they fell away. Now, we all know people like that. They shoot up like Roman candles. I can think of five or six right off the top of my head in my life. They receive the word with joy. They spring up. And then as soon as trials come, they're not in the kingdom anymore. But tonight, we want to talk about a group that it's not that. They run the race for a long time. The problem is, in the soil that is their heart, other things exist besides the pure word of God. And they're allowed to grow until it chokes out the light of God's Word. It makes them unfruitful. We just finished studying the book of Matthew on Wednesday nights. If you came away with nothing else from the book of Matthew, you should have this one thing in your mind. If you are going to remain a part of the vine, if you're going to remain in the kingdom, you must produce fruit. Otherwise, you're found to be an unworthy, wicked, lazy servant. Now, I don't say that. The Word says that. Well, it's important then, if weeds can grow alongside a Christian and make you unfruitful, it's important to recognize what they are. See, because being in Christ is not enough. Being planted in the soil, beginning to grow, is not enough. It's a great start. But you have to weed and feed if you want to survive and be pleasing to the King. Because in the end... Trees, fig trees that produce no figs, are useless. They're cursed. 
So with that in mind, we see that the seed among thorns was on soil that, aside from the thorns, was good. You know, I mean, it produced growth. It started. So what happened that made it unfruitful? What happened that made it die? Turn to Proverbs 4, and we're going to see the beginning of what I wanted to teach tonight. We're going to pick up in verse 20. My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. Above all else, he said, guard your heart. It's a wellspring of life. You know, in middle In the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages, if you wanted to utterly decimate a village, not only could you pollute their crops, which happened all the time, and you pour salt in it, but if you really wanted to get to the heart of of conquering them, you would put something in their well. Because without water, people can only live a few days. And if you pollute the well, the village is decimated. They have no chance for survival. The Bible is teaching that your heart is like a wellspring of life. The soils that were in the previous parable have to do with your heart. What you allow to enter your heart will affect your Christian walk, your life, and everyone around you. Now, as Christians, we know this. I mean, you've been taught this. But to live it is something totally different. Think about it. How many times has something crept its way, wormed its way into your heart that ought not be there, and you look back and go... Golly, I've been mad at that person for all this time. How did that happen? Or you're praying and something keeps coming back to mind, letting you know that you need to do some work. I've had some major events in my life that were not easy to guard the well of my heart. But it is the most important thing you could do. And look what he adds to it. It says, put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk Far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. If you want to guard your heart, one of the most important things that you can do, it's no coincidence that it goes from talking about the heart to talking about your mouth. As soon as he tells you to guard your heart, he says, hey, don't let perverse or corrupt talk come out of your mouth. Now, because of our society, the wicked billboards, the nastiness that comes on Hell's Box Office and Send the Max and all of those things, when you think of perversity, you may not think of what the Bible describes as perversity. Perversity is is anything that is crooked. We're going to find out that perverse talk It's anything that is not God's word that you're speaking. As children of God, we're supposed to be ambassadors of God. We're supposed to speak only His words. If I said that somebody was talking perversely, you would think they were talking in a sexual nature, something that's bad. But the reality is, when somebody goes, did you hear about Claire? Boy, she really thinks she's all that. That is just as perverse as any other vile thing you could say, because it's not useful for building Claire up. That would only tear her down. It's not speaking as you're speaking the very words of God. It's not speaking as an ambassador of God. Instead, whose tool do you become when you speak those kind of words? 
In short, the field with weeds has failed to guard its heart. Its life is being choked out. If you allow things to come into your heart, one of the first places it shows up is in your speech. And, and y'all know those scriptures, and we'll cover them tonight. We tend to think of, oh, so-and-so let bitterness get in their heart. And we think about that expressing itself through anger and rage. And all. You know the most telltale sign of something wrong with your heart? You see, and i got mostly women in here tonight, but women are the ones that are usually picked on for this, and guys are just as guilty. It comes out of your mouth in gossip. As soon as you feel wrong, you know what we do as people? And I'm telling you, I should put a big mirror back here because I'm guilty. As soon as you feel wrong, what you tend to do is pick up the phone or go see your friends. Tell everybody how you were wronged. And you begin to build a consensus among people. Don't you think I was wronged? Well, and if you don't get the consensus from your friends... If I go talk to Julie and Caitlin and I say, man, you should see what Matthew did to me, how badly he treated me. If they do what is godly and say, you know, Eric, you may be misunderstanding that. Oh, I don't want to talk to them anymore. I'm going to go find somebody who will agree. I'll go find David Hall or whoever it is that will agree with me. We give ourselves away by the speech that comes out of our mouth. Something should ever be on your mind about other Christians. None of them belong to you. Whether they're your children, your spouses, your sheep, nobody belongs to you. You are judging another man's servant when you speak negatively about somebody in Christ. Romans 14.4 says it very clearly. Who are you, O man, to judge somebody else's servant? You know what? That's not exclusive to how we deal with one another. It also has to do with how churches deal with one another. It has to do with... Any time we compare ourselves with other people and measure ourselves by ourselves, Paul says that's not wise. We need to move away from that and enter into speech that's edifying. It doesn't matter whether I agree with everything that is going on in a church down the road. Why don't I just teach truth? The sheep will learn to point out or to see error from the truth I've pointed out. What it turns into is me tearing down another man's work. And it's wrong. It's wrong and Please, right now, let's, let's stop. Get this straight. Everybody make eye contact with me if you can. I'm not talking about somebody else. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. Nobody outside of this church. My responsibility is this tiny little field right here. And it's important to me that our speech be edifying. It's important to me that our hearts be shown to be pure and that we're not throwing weeds into everybody else's heart. We have an enormous responsibility to weed and feed our hearts with the Word. If what gets into your heart tends to come out of your mouth, and that has the potential to get into other people's hearts, we need to not sow bad seed into other people's fields. Sometimes people like to talk out their problems. That's okay if the speech is directed towards Jesus. It's not possible to defile His heart. It is not okay to continually talk out your problems with all of the brothers and sisters around you. Because what happens is Cassidy and I have a problem. And I feel a need just to talk that out with Mandy. And before long, the same poison that entered my heart is entered Mandy's. Well, Cassidy and I have made up. But now Mandy's mad at Cassidy for all she did to Eric. Long after Eric's forgotten about it. And this is how a gossip separates close friends. Now, we see, see this in the Word and we'll stand up and boldly proclaim it. 
And then we walk out of church and we do everything that we said we wouldn't do. This ought not be. This kind of hypocrisy is not fitting for the body of Christ. What must the world think when they begin to speak to you about a Christian and you don't have anything positive to say? Somebody mentions Jimmy Swaggart and all you can say is all the reasons you disagree. Somebody mentions Larry Stockstill or Joel Osteen or any of the people that we may disagree with about a lot of things. But somebody mentions them and all we can think of is the points that we disagree. At what point do we become guilty of what we've accused others of? Dividing up into little groups. One saying, I follow Apollos. Another saying, I follow Paul. All of these people were just servants through whom we came to believe. We need to develop a more mature attitude about the body. We'll examine Paul's attitude in a little while. I tell you, I am not where that guy was. He, he was awesome. After years and years of ministry, people could slander him and be preaching. And he'd say, hey, well, some preach out of envy. Some are trying to stir up trouble for me. But Christ is still being preached. It's all good. Yeah, that, I'm trying to mature. You know, that is a hard thing to do. When somebody says something that's ugly about you, first thing you want to do is go defend yourself. And it's the last thing a Christian's allowed to do. The best example I can think of is when Miriam and Aaron attacked Moses. He had a Cushite wife. They said negative things about her, presumably because she was black. Moses, the Bible says, was the most humble man on the planet. So he didn't go and defend himself to them. He acted, in fact, like he didn't even know. And you know who did take up his cause? God did. He spit in their faces. Now, these are people that God loved. But because they were being the mouthpiece of the enemy, you'll find out God has no friends that are so close to him that he will not point out their error. You are never close enough to Jesus for gossip and slander to be okay. You can't get there. That's not, he's not a respecter of persons. We quote that all the time. And yet we think it's okay. You'll let me get away with gossip and slander, but if Judah did it, you would rebuke him. It ought not be that way. Nobody's close enough to Jesus to get away with slandering his servants. You ever heard the proverb that says, if a man speaks poorly about another man's servant, he'll bring down a curse on him? I wonder how that applies to Christians. As people of God, we have the potential for good. And we must also recognize and come to grips with the fact that we have the potential for bad. See, when the world sins, it's no big deal. If a dog barks, you don't think that's strange? When you walked outside and you saw a bird flying today, you didn't fall on the ground in total amazement. That's what those animals do. So when a sinner sins, that's nothing abnormal. It's what you would expect for them to sin. Let a Christian do something and it does twice the damage. We need to recognize that we have great power to influence people and use it wisely. Look at Matthew 16. I want to show you something from Peter's life. Starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You can see Jesus' eyes turn towards the disciples. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. 
And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. What did Peter get praised for? Peter got praised because he heard from God and he spoke those words which he heard. He heard from the Father. I'm not talking about hearing with his ear. It was revealed to him in some way. It became known in a real and meaningful way that Jesus was the Christ. That was in his heart and out of his mouth he professed it. And Jesus was thrilled with it. said, man, this is the kind of thing I'm going to build my kingdom on. Do you know what the very next story about Peter is? The very next thing that happens, pick up in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. This same man that was praised, that was praised for being able to hear from God and speak those words, the next story about his life is that he was used of the enemy to sow weeds. How would you like to have written about your name that you were a stumbling block to Jesus? Because you had in mind the things of men. Now, we know our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual powers and principalities in this dark realm. But much like if God wants to accomplish something on the earth, he uses men to do it. He wanted to split the Red Sea. He had to have Moses extend the staff. He wants to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. He has a man lead them out. He says he did it, but he did it through a man. He wanted to reconcile the world to himself, but he did it through the man Jesus. When Satan wants to do something... Like kill the Christ, he used wicked and sinful men to do it. You can be a mouthpiece for either good or evil. And every time you open your mouth, you have the chance to do that. Well, what was so evil about what Peter said? It seems like it was based on love. and con- I wouldn't want Claire to be killed. I wouldn't want her to be crucified. I wouldn't want her to have negative things happen to her. I could say, no, Claire, never. But if it was God's will for her, What have I just done? I've placed a stumbling block in her path. I've become... You know what Satan means? Anybody define it? That's not exactly right. That's one of the meanings. But do you know what its truest meaning is? Opposition. He's he who opposes you. That's what Satan means. You have become the opposition of God's will in their life. So let me tell you something. Somebody sings a song, right? And they're anointed for it. But maybe on that day, you know, maybe they stayed up too late. Maybe you didn't like the song. And afterwards, you know, Jen and I are talking. I said, you know, Jen, Cassidy was singing today. And I know she's supposed to be anointed for it and all that. But, man, didn't you think she was off key? I don't think anybody was blessed by that. I've just become the voice of Satan. I've just become the stumbling block for her to do God's will. I have a weed in my heart that threatens the Word of God that is there. That if it's allowed to grow, it will choke it out. And you know what's worse than that? I threw some of that nastiness right into Jennifer. 
by doing it. And it goes on in every church I've ever been a part of. The most powerful men of God I know fall flat on their face in this area. Well, we can use that as an excuse and say, well, the most powerful men of God I know fall flat on their face. So it's okay. We can measure ourselves by others or we can hold ourselves up to the ruler that is the Word of God in Christ and refuse to give way in that area. We have to. Now, I've used benign examples. What's it like when somebody says, you know, Caitlin says she's called to Brazil or Caitlin says she's called to Ethiopia, but I don't believe she heard from God. Is the statement that you said, did you hear that from God? Did he tell you to proclaim that? Are you bringing a word that you've heard from his counsel? Because if not, you don't have the right to say it. And if God did tell her that, you've just become that thing which is standing between her and God's will. How sinful is that? How wrong is that? Now, let me ask you something. It's not usually the world that does that. You know, the world thinks we're all crazy anyway. I can go tell ten people at work God called me to Africa and they just kind of laugh and think, you know, well, we always knew it's half a bubble off. But I go tell ten charismatic Christians that. Eight of them go home and grumble and talk about, I don't believe that's God's will. You know, why? Why are we so ready to place our ability to hear from God in something that doesn't concern us above somebody's ability to hear from God that it solely concerns? I mean... What, what's wrong with us? What puts us in a position to be able to do that? If somebody puts you in a position to do that, they've sinned against you. None of us are supposed to be God to the other ones. At best, we should be able to give each other some guidance. Paul's closest friends came to him and tried to convince him not to go to Jerusalem. They wept. They begged him not to go. Did they hear from God? Absolutely. They said, hey... Whoever's belt this is, you're going to be mistreated in Jerusalem. Did they apply that knowledge of God correctly? Not at all. They concluded he wasn't supposed to go. But we know that Paul's calling was come unto me and I'll show you how much you must suffer for my name. Nobody could know that better than Paul. And yet all the men of God in his life tried to talk him out of doing the thing that he was destined to do. Friends, we cannot place our will above God's will. Not because we want to tear somebody down or not because we want to protect somebody. See, Peter's motives weren't negative. He wasn't trying to be mean to the Christ. (laughs) James 3, starting in verse 7, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Now, we know, and we say it like this, in Christianity you have to be hot or you have to be cold. You can't ride the fence. There is no place for lucers. We're not shrinkers. We're not the kind to get vomited out. Y'all have heard me say every one of those things. And everybody I've been associated in ministry says every one of those things. And the whole goal of the preaching is to push you to be a flame or push you to be an iceberg so that you're not confusing. And yet in our speech, we are both freshwater and saltwater springs. I don't care how much good you do, how much money you give to people privately. 
How many times you drop off groceries or cut your neighbor's grass? If they hear you slandering people made in God's image, it is a stumbling block to them. And what's worse than that? Have you noticed man's most amazing ability? You know, I mean, the most amazing thing man can do is not make calculations in his head. It's not that we can get to the moon. It's not that somebody who's poor can ascend to the White House. The most amazing thing that human beings do consistently is justify themselves. I'm amazed at that ability. It does not matter what you want, what you've done. You can justify it to yourself. You know, if if you want to gossip, you can say, well, I just found it necessary to let those brothers know what they were getting into. I just found it necessary to warn sister so-and-so about brother so-and-so. You can justify whatever you want. And I've noticed that when people are in sin, me, me most of all, nothing seems wrong to you. And it takes a while to get beyond that justification for the Spirit to pierce that heart so that you can begin to pull out the weeds. But in the meantime, before the conviction and the repentance comes, how many people did you poison? See, words can't be taken back. And once I go tell every one of you that some servant of God out there is crazy, you know, or a senile old man, or whatever it is that somebody might be saying. I said senile old man because I heard somebody say that about Oral Roberts. And before I ever saw Oral Roberts, before I ever read anything, before I ever saw a picture of him or heard anything he said, the one thing I knew about him was that somebody I loved and respected thought he was a senile old man. Do you think I gave the guy a fair shot when I first heard him? You know, how many people are there that you've talked to your friends about? A boss, a co-worker, a relative? Your friend has never met but has a negative opinion of. How about that? Mandy may never have met my uncle, Julius. I don't have an uncle, Julius. So as these CDs circulate, hopefully there's not an uncle out there I don't know about named Julius. She may never have known him. But if I sit there and say, boy, my uncle Julius, you know, he's not too bright. You know, beats his wife. (laughs) You know, drinks too much, smokes dope. Whatever it is, I have poisoned her towards him so that she doesn't even really want to meet Uncle Julius, does she? Now, that's easy if he really does beat his wife and all those things. But what if Uncle Julius is a spirit-filled Christian that loves the Lord, but he happens to believe rapture? What if he still has not quite pulled away from once saved, always saved? What if some of his other teachings are a bit peculiar, but the guy really does love the Lord? But all I've told Mandy is all the areas that I believe he's in error. How does Mandy view Uncle Julius when she meets him? Was it my right to run him down? Did God give me the authority to run him down like that? Because the Word says even Paul only had the authority to build you up, not tear you down. But how would I justify that? Mandy's my sheep. I needed to warn her, right? Well, if God told me to, yeah, I should absolutely do that. If God spoke and said, Eric, I want you to slander Julius to Mandy so that when Mandy meets Julius, she'll be on her guard, that would be fine. But I'm I'm not sure that God often does that. See, you can point out truth from the Word without doing that. Now, I'm not just talking about preachers here. Guys, we do it all the time. Anybody, you find out when people don't have your same preferences, they don't like the same kind of food you do, don't like the same kind of music you do, maybe they dress differently, how much easier it is to think negatively of them. wonder why that is. Deep down, you think maybe each one of us has a little love of self 
You, you think there might be a little self in there that, that likes itself? Hmm. In Proverbs 18.21, you know, we have an obligation because it says the tongue holds the power of life and death and those that love it will eat its fruit. You are going to produce one kind of fruit or another with your tongue. As children of God, we are compelled to speak the words of God. That is the fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 7, it got me saved. Every tree is going to produce one kind of fruit or another. Now, we know that about our lives. We want to do good. But somehow, when it comes to our tongues, we think it's okay. We have a free pass. We forget those little words. You're going to give an account for every idle word. We forget about that. You know, we think that applies to somebody else. When you've raised the dead, you've healed the sick, and you've done all of those things, but you've murdered people with your tongue, don't think the one outweighs the other. It doesn't. You say, well, the fact that I've done all of these other things and the anointing's on me, you know, it shows God's favor. If you were, if anointing meant that God's favor was upon you, how did A.A. Allen heal people drunk? He anoints you because he can use any tool. You can be set aside for God's divine purpose and be Caiaphas. Caiaphas spoke anointed words. Do you all realize that? The guy that had it in his heart to kill Jesus spoke as high priest prophesied an anointed prophecy. Did that make Caiaphas a good guy? Stop judging people by whether or not they're anointed. The fruit of our tongue should be good too. Now, when you look into this word, it should be a mirror that reflects you. So don't let your minds drift to everybody else that you think does not do this well. Okay? If you're forced to think about somebody besides yourself, which is wrong, think about me. But don't go outside of this room. See, that's one of our coping mechanisms. It's one of the ways we protect the weeds that are in our heart. As the word comes to pierce the darkness, we begin to think, boy, so-and-so really has a problem with that. Afterwards, you'll find this kind of nervous chatter after a really convicting message. Hey, Mandy, did you hear what Pastor Perot was saying? Man, Jennifer, she sure has a problem with that. I hope she heard that. You know, we laugh, and I I have been a part of those conversations for years. And it's funny because you know better, but nobody seems to have the guts to kind of say, Hey, you know, probably ought not be saying that. I think he was talking about you. You know, nobody seems to have that courage. Now, if somebody walked in and was, you know, shooting heroin, you, you would say that's wrong. But when somebody's speaking poison into somebody else's ear, we just let it go. Oh, they mean well. God knows their heart. Yeah, but do they know their heart? You know, that's, that's the question. How do we become sowers of weeds and hinder the kingdom? How does that happen? How do people that love the Lord end up sowing bad seed? What what causes that transformation? Turn to James. We're in James, so turn to your left to the first chapter of James. The process of all sin pretty well works the same. And in James 1, starting in verse 13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted... Alright, now how is each one tempted? By his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed then after desire has conceived it gives birth to sin when sin is full grown gives birth to death 
How is it that you're tempted? You have a thought that is wicked and it begins to entice you to sin. Once you have sinned, you get to decide whether to do it again or not. When you decide to stay in sin, it will eventually give birth to death. You know, the beautiful thing about realizing that is, if you know that every sin, regardless of the kind it is, starts with an enticing thought, you know how to stop every sin that could possibly happen in the thought stage. Because once it becomes out of your body, whether it's a spoken word or an action or whatever it is, once enticement has compelled you to sin, now you've affected other people. Thinking about that process, since sin always starts with an enticing thought, and if it's left unchecked, it produces death. 1 Samuel 13, verse 7. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering just as he finished making the offering. Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, or that the command that the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. Samuel gave Saul the word of God. I will be here in seven days. I will offer a burnt offering and a fellowship offering. Wait for me there. Saul began to look around. He saw that the troops were quaking with fear. He saw something that produced in him a thought. That thought that was based on the fear of men. The fear that he might lose his kingdom. The fear that he might not gain more kingdom. Whatever it was, that thought compelled him to do something that was sin. You know, Samuel showed up on the seventh day. He just didn't show up as fast on the seventh day as Saul thought he should. And Saul lost the kingdom. Y'all realize Saul's not always spoken of as a bad guy in the Bible? The Bible says that Saul's heart was changed. That Saul became godly. He prophesied. His heart was changed to become like God's. He was born again in the Old Testament sense of the word. But his heart was polluted. Weeds grew up in there. The fear of men grew alongside God's command and it choked it out. He didn't cease to be king. He didn't stop speaking as king. In fact, his hypocrisy carried on until we know Saul as a type of antichrist. Somebody who wanted to kill all the anointed around him. David. Who wanted to pin him to the wall with a spear that out of one side of his mouth said, I love you, David, my son. And out of the other side of his mouth, cursed him. This should not be. It should not be. But it started with a thought. He even said it. I thought and I felt compelled. Saul's thoughts and fear of failure produce sin. 
At its root, almost all sin is motivated by fear, just like Saul's was. For that reason, when you see somebody sinning by gossip, you can recognize, despite everything else that I see, this person evidently has a great deal of fear. Because that is motivating the need to speak maliciously. These examples were thoughts that caused an action. But let's not forget that our words are the expression of our thoughts and that they reveal our hearts. In Matthew 12, we're almost done here, so y'all hang in there with me. You know, they say that you know when to put a period on a sentence when it's the expression of a thought. If it's less than that, it's an incomplete cause. You know, it's a fragment. But once it expresses a complete thought, those words together become a sentence. Well, every word that comes out of your mouth is the expression of a thought that was in your mind. It's a way for you to communicate the thought that was in your mind or your heart to other people. When you think of your words in that light, God, what does it say about us when we say negative things? That's not good. It's letting, letting us know that the corruption of this world has stained our righteous souls. It's letting us know that we've still been polluted by the world that's around us. You should fight that. You should war against it as if it were a cancer so that all you speak are edifying words. In Matthew 12, verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. You know, the word careless doesn't imply that it was premeditated, does it? That you laid awake at night and said, let me see how I can hurt Caitlin. What could I say that would really pierce her heart? Careless implies that you had a thought and it just jumped out of your mouth, doesn't it? You didn't think to restrain it. That's why it's important that we weed and feed our minds constantly with the Word. He's not even talking about premeditated hurting somebody. He's talking about the hurtful words that are an expression of the evil that you've allowed to dwell in your heart. In Matthew 15, Jesus had more to say about this. And He was talking about food, but as He teaches on food, it's interesting to see... What he says, it's Matthew 15, uh, 16. Yeah, we can start in 16. Are you still so dull? I would hope not. Jesus asked them, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, Sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating without unwashed hands does not make him unclean. You know, there is no parentheses there where it says, except Christians. The words that come out of your mouth cause you to be unclean. It doesn't matter that you've been washed in the blood. It doesn't matter that you're called a Christian. The words that come out of your mouth can make you unclean and you need to repent. Friends, I've needed to repent many times. The Proverbs say if you speak a lot, there's a great chance for your sin. Well, I mean, I'm called to preach. All I do is proclaim. 
I speak a lot. And when I begin to render judgments on things that God has not given me the words to render the judgment, I often have spoken careless words. You know how we do it? We go, well, you know what? You, you, you know what I think about that? You know, I really don't care. And nobody else should care what I think about something. You should pay great attention to what God's shown me about it. You should pay great attention to the revelation that God gave us into a matter. But what you think about something, it really doesn't matter. Sometimes we are so busy telling everybody what we think about everything that we pay no attention to the fact that we've just destroyed half of Christianity while we do it. Like an M16 firing out of our mouth in every direction. We're tearing everybody down. Do you know where women are the worst about this? I'm sorry if I'm going to hurt any feelings. When you're sitting, when you're sitting at a table with a bunch of women and another woman walks in the room, the first thing women do is look her up and down worse than guys would do. They notice whether her hair looks good, whether her nails are done, whether her clothes match, all of those things. Women are so much more critical of other women. It, it, it's unbelievable. Now, guys have their whole areas of sin. I'm not making this a gender thing. But I'm just saying, sometimes people that are made in God's image, and all we can notice is that we think that their hair is ugly. You know, All we can talk about is that they're dorky, or that they're fat, or that they're bald, or that they're buck-toothed. Yeah. I mean, and you know what? Jesus loves each one of them. And, and, and we act like, oh yeah, Jesus loves those poor buck-toothed people too. You know, no, it ought to be He loves them and He loves you also. We ought not think of ourselves more highly than we, we, we should. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? If Jesus had no beauty or majesty to draw people to Him, why is it that we expect His followers to all fit into some kind of mold? You know, I remember somebody said to me a long time ago, I sinned, I made a mistake, and I, I said about another brother, yeah, I don't know if they have the same spirit we do. And it's somebody I love. I was talking about Wade, okay? And uh, Wade and I are brothers. We're close. We love each other. There's nothing that could tear us apart. But, I, you know, I don't know if, if he's got the same spirit we do. And Preston Coles looked at me and said, what does that mean, Eric? Does that mean he doesn't like Greek food? Does that mean he doesn't like the coarse joke? What does that mean? And God, I was convicted because I knew he was right. I said, no, you're right, Preston. He definitely has the same spirit we do. He might have different likes and dislikes than I do. And I should appreciate that. And you know what I do? I really do about Wade. It was new, and I was being judgmental. Paul said he learned not to judge people according to the flesh. We should learn the same thing. Wade's got a whole lot more going for him in the flesh than I do. I'm not saying that picking on Wade. I'm, I'm telling on myself. And you know what? It was commonplace at that time in my life. It ought not be. We should grow towards Jesus. Don't put up with where you are today. You must go further in the kingdom. So when gossip or slander, or when we gossip or slander, we are putting weeds in other hearts and revealing the weeds in our own. When you say something negative about somebody, you are revealing the condition of your heart. When you receive something that was negative, when you are the listener of gossip, when you are giving ear to it, you are allowing the wellspring of your heart to be polluted. Our weeds never affect us alone. They always, always affect others. You know, the Word says that they defile others. 
I've never been extremely academic, but even I can see that there's a root word there. Huh? Defile. If you knock off that E, what does it do to others? You are being the devil to others. Defiling them when we do this. Turn to Hebrews 12. I make it my goal in life that regardless of what I'm dealing with, regardless of how I may struggle, may drop the ball, for sure not to defile others. I was put on this earth to edify others. I don't want to poison anyone. And listen to how this is worded. This is Hebrews 12, verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. If you allow bitterness in your life, it will defile all of the people that are around you. And I'm curious, why does he say make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy? It's because when you allow there to be long or an ongoing situation of contention, between you and any other human being, you exponentially increase the probability that you will say negative things about them. If Cassidy and I have a disagreement, but before the sun goes down, we settle it. There's less chance that we're going to sin against each other. If we let this go on for many months, the probability that I will slander her or say something negative about her or her about me grows. And that defiles the people that are around you, the hearers. And if you think you're doing some kind of service to people by warning them about everyone else, friends, you are not. You're not. You're defiling them. Be very careful that you never participate in anything like that. And if you have, and I have, then you should repent because it's wrong. Before Mandy comes over tonight, I don't need to sit down and run down the laundry list of Mandy's life with all of you just so that you'll know how to relate to Mandy. I don't need to tear p down because maybe, maybe everybody likes Matthew more than they do me so that you'll know how I feel. I don't need to do those things. And it's not okay, no matter who we are and no matter what Matthew did to me. It's never, there is nothing that could justify you speaking about God's servant in those ways. Never. And yet it's as common, it's as common as checking the mail. It happens every day. And I can say with almost no fear of contradiction, each one of you do this on a regular basis, and I do too. But I will not accept that in my life. I'm going to war against it because it's wrong. And you know what? If you begin to recognize when others are doing this about you, that it literally does speak about the condition of their heart, it will help you have mercy and pray for them, not become bitter at them. See, because God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. So if somebody's speaking negatively, if they're gossiping about you, what do you know they need? They need love and support and security. Because obviously they're feeling insecure. They're fearing loss. They're fearing that they won't be able to gain something. So if it says that about them, give them what they need. If every time Mandy sees me, or every time Mandy sees somebody else, she's gossiping about me to them, and I know that, then when I see Mandy, I need to let Mandy know how much I love her 
how I think highly of her, how I, the good things that I can speak about in her life so that she will feel secure and she won't feel the need to tear me apart. I need to do that because it's good for her. And the God who rewards in public what he sees done in private will reward it. It also leaves room for God's judgment, which is another perk. When we become lax in guarding our hearts and we remain in quarrels, I mean, when we get lazy and you don't do what it takes because it is hard work to cast down offenses. You know, when somebody walks in and says, Claire, I think you're stupid. You know, it may come out of your mouth. Well, thank you, brother. I'm sorry you feel that way. But that thought rolls around. It's funny. Russ Gotro taught on it one time and it was uh, the treadmill. The, it's like the it's on the treadmill of your mind that this thought keeps coming around. Every time you think of the person, it comes around. And it's ironic because Russ was often on my treadmill in my life. You have to cast it down every time it comes around. And it's tiresome. It's wearisome. It's much easier for you to just accept that and think, I'm going to put them on the list of people I never want to see again. Now, it's not unforgiveness, unforgiveness mind you. I just don't want to see them again. You know, and I'm not gossiping, mind you. I'm just telling Jennifer Hall how she should pray for them or how she should relate to them. But you really want to watch out for so and so because they're a fork tongued devil. Oh, did I say that? I mean, because they often don't speak nicely. You know, that is so wrong. And it's when we get lazy in our Christian walk that that happens. We get apathetic towards the enemy's schemes. And listen to what Proverbs 24 says about it. We got about three more scriptures. And everybody said, Amen. amen. <laughs> so get me out of here. It's hot. It's that chicken cooking light up there making me hot. <laughs> Proverbs 24. It's the heat lamp. We actually had a floodlight up there at first. And Matthew's taller than I am. And he said it was cooking his head. So we took it out and put a regular light bulb. It's the heatiation. It'll kill you. Proverbs 24, verse 28. Do not testify against your neighbor without cause or use your lips to deceive. Now, I know I can hear the thoughts. Well, I had cause. He told me I was stupid, so I told him where he could go, you know. That's not what this means. This is like without subpoena. The cause here is like, don't go to testify against your neighbor without being subpoenaed. Without being forced to in a court of law or under oath from God, don't give testimony about your neighbor. Don't be looking for every opportunity to go, well, oh yeah, you know what he does? And don't use your lips to deceive. Do not say, I'll do to him as he's done to me. I'll pay back that man for what he did. I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of a man who lacks judgment. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed, and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit, and scarcity like an armed man. When you become lazy in pulling the weeds out of your heart, and casting down negative thoughts, when you get laxed in that, and you think, oh well, you know, it's alright for me to think that about Mandy. It's all right for me to think about so-and-so. Then poverty in a spiritual sense will overcome you. It will come upon you like a flood. God 
when you build a wall between you and your neighbor, you're building a ceiling between you and your God. If you curse another man's servant to his master, he will curse you, the Proverbs say. Well, when we speak negatively about our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're offending the very Christ that we're supposed to serve because it's a member of his body. You know, my wife got very upset at me one time. It's funny. I say very upset. We never get really upset. He said we're as playful. I told her she had ugly feet. I know. I can't believe he said that. I was teasing her. I said she had Flintstone feet. Now, I didn't really. She got little square toes, you know. And I didn't really think that all the way through. No, good point. And that's where I'm going with that. What I meant as playful banter really had the potential to create in her insecurities. All the women, when I said that, were, you know, what, you know, men are pigs kind of thought, you know. It's because men often do those things. But what I'm getting at is what just seemed like a careless thought to me could have impacted her. I knew a girl in the seventh grade that had to stand up and do a math problem. She didn't do it well, and the teacher made fun of her. She almost failed out of math for the rest of, of her school career. And you know what? She was smart. Her father was an engineer. It was well within her abilities, but it planted a weed in her. It hurt her, and it caused an insecurity so that she never did well in that area. Don't become lax in guarding your heart. Don't allow these things to get in there. When that wall gets broken down, more just comes. It's kind of like that demon that gets cast out, comes back, finds his house clean and swept, and has seven of his friends. Once you get used to letting these weeds in, they pile in. I mean, it'll totally pollute you. Notice this. People that at one time walked with Jesus, and now you don't think they're very close to Jesus... They have a growing list of people they don't like in their lives. You don't have the right to even have one person on that list. And when you begin thinking, oh, I never want to see that person again, about people, and that list begins to grow, something's wrong with the condition of your heart. I don't believe Jesus had one person on that list. Now, that doesn't mean you love everything everybody does. I mean, it really doesn't. I can think of a lot of things that I don't like that people do. It doesn't even mean that that you desire to spend every waking moment with somebody. But be honest with yourself. Use sober judgment. You know the difference between it not being edifying for you to spend time with somebody and, oh, I I forgive them. I just don't ever want to see them again. Right. Mm. Yeah, sounds like forgiveness to me. You'd die for that person, wouldn't you? Yeah, obviously. As we gossip, we become the enemy's sower of weeds. Remember, we're called to be ambassadors of God. And yet an ambassador of God like Peter in the next moment had become an ambassador of Satan. Had the things in his mind that were the will of men. And he was speaking those. We have the potential for both. Anointed men of God stand up and preach an anointed message. And then step off of the podium and begin to talk to people and have in mind the things of men. And it's just as wrong for them as it is the sheep. It's wrong for all of us. Because we're all talking about people's servants. You need to recognize you have the potential for both and choose to only speak those things which are good. In Proverbs 18.8 says the words 
of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost parts. Innards. Your inmost parts, the center of something, the cardo, it's the heart. It used to be the center of a, a street in, in the Greek culture. When the Bible says the inmost parts, it means the center of a human being. You need to realize that when you're gossiping to somebody, it is getting into their heart. It's no different than you pouring salt in their well. You are harming them. And dear God, don't do it to your kids. You know, we, I tell you what, growing up in the South, you see who, parents that are racist by their children, right? Because children don't naturally have that in their hearts. But when a parent pours it in there, it gets in there. Well, the same thing works in every other area. You know, it really does. We need to be careful. Yes. Yeah, tell me. A tail bearer. Yeah. I, it was just, it was all in good fun. We were just goofing. So what that every joke I told was at Mandy's expense? I'm sure it has no effect. That didn't get into anybody's hearts. Nobody will see her as a buffoon because I describe her as a buffoon all day, every day, will they? Yeah. Just, just wanted to convey a story. How about Proverbs 16, 28? A perverse man stirs up dissension and a gossip separates close friends. Well, I've seen that at work in my life. I've been separated from my closest friends at times by this kind of statement. Boy, did you see what so-and-so did? And that thought gets into somebody and the devil builds on it. And before long, two friends, people that have known each other for years, are looking at each other cross-eyed when all that had to be done was it measured against the word and cast down. I have done that to others, and I've had that done to me. I, I'm not standing here innocent. I'm not telling you, oh, poor Eric's been gossiped against. I have done that to people. And it was just as wrong when I did that to others as when it was done to me. Somehow, though, we have this way of clinging to all the people that have wounded us. huh? Oh, so-and-so hurt me, and so-and-so hurt me, and they were disloyal. And Man, there's a long list of them. But we never seem to freely admit all of the people that we've trashed, that we've burned, that we've hurt their lives. And if we did hurt them, well, it was because they weren't deep enough in the faith, or they couldn't cast down an offense. We have an obligation not to give offenses, too. There are two sides to that. You know, I'm real quick to tell you guys, well, just don't let the devil get in. Well, how about I don't be his mouthpiece to you? You know, walk up and say, hey, you're an idiot, but don't let the devil get in. Yeah, cast that thought down. I'm going to throw it at you, but you cast it down. How absurd is that? And it goes on all of the time. Let's not participate in it. We're almost done. The solution. Let's finish on a, on a positive note. What's the solution? In Proverbs 26.20, we have a, a proverb that gives us a solution. Without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. When you begin to refuse to say anything negative about somebody else, pretty soon there's nothing left to fight about. How many times have you been in an argument with people, right? Uh, those of you that have been married, this, I know you can relate to this. You're fighting. Blah, 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 blah. You go to opposite ends of the house. You cross arms. And then a little while later, you remember that you are pissed off, but you don't even remember what about. 
I've been in fights before with my wife when one of the two of us stopped and said, what are we arguing about? Well, I don't know, but I sure am mad. Quit gossiping, quit speaking, and the fire will die down. If somebody's talking negatively against you, don't defend yourself. Refuse to say anything, and eventually the quarrel will just go away. And if it doesn't, God will deal with them. I see moms and daughters talking. This could never be any more evident than in junior high and high school. This is, this is the proving ground for that. I mean, do you remember that song when we were in high school? Oh, my God, Becky, look at her butt, you know? Yeah, and, the, and that, yeah. Now, the reason, among many others, that there's no real good reason I just quoted that nasty song, but it is typical of the kind of speech that you're used to hearing. Well, in juveniles and adolescents, it might, it's not excusable, but you expect there to be a learning curve. But what happens when people get into their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they still do that? We have an obligation to mature in Christ. Even the law expresses this heart. Turn to Leviticus 19. 19 is the number. That's right. Leviticus 19, verse 16 Begins a teaching. Now, this is the law. Okay, this was this was the constitution of Israel said this. Can you imagine opening a, a civics book and this being in your civics book as a law for your land? Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am Yahweh. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in his guilt. Guys, even the law given to people to constrain them till Christ came before the Holy Ghost was in you to lead you. He said, don't slander. Don't do anything that would hurt your neighbor. Don't, don't hate people in your heart. If you have an issue, deal with it frankly, right up front. And you know what? We should be mature enough that you could say to me, Eric, when you said that, it hurt my feelings. And I shouldn't just look at you and say, hey, hey don't let the devil get in, okay? Suck it up. I should be able to look at you and say, I'm sorry. I want to bring edifying words to you, not negative words. I'm sorry. Now, if this happens every day, you know, if every day you're offended, you need to examine your life too. Okay? I mean, it's not a one-way street. But what about when someone is wrong or opposes you? What about when people continually speak negatively of you? They constantly... Do this and don't stop. How did Paul handle that? In 1 Corinthians, listen to how he says this. Paul was something else. Verse 19. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19. No doubt there have to be, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Paul chalked it up like this. Of course we disagree. Claire, of course you and I don't always see eye to eye. These differences have to be. That way we can find out what God approves of. You know... He, and he's not saying that with the attitude of, and I'm always right. 
He's saying it is good that people sometimes don't see eye to eye because God will make His will clear. If nobody ever expresses any dissent, if that's always confused as disloyalty, how would you ever change directions? How is that not a papal monarchy? In Philippians 3... I gotta hurry or it won't fit on the CD, and this is a Wednesday. Philippians 3, verse 17. Join with the others in following my examples, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, that is not what I wanted to read. <laughs> hmm. In any case, in the book of Philippians, somewhere, is it not written? Paul says, and if you think differently on some point, 15. Ah, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. It's okay if people have different thoughts. God will make it clear to them. It's not my job to ramrod it down your throat or to talk badly against you if you don't agree with me. I just trust that God's going to make it clear. See, sometimes we have such a fear that, oh, well, Matt doesn't agree with me and he's going to poison all of those other people that I go out and do the very thing I'm accusing him of doing. Go poison everybody about Matt. How about if I just say, you know, Matt, It's good that this difference is between us. Let's see where God's favor lies. And God will make it clear. That is a mature view to take. It's hard, though. It's really hard. We want people to agree with us. And if they don't, we want to know why. And no matter what, they're wrong and we're right. I mean, that's just the flesh. But we need to cast down the flesh. As Christians, we must be warriors. In 2 Corinthians 10, and this is really the scripture that sums up everything that we've said tonight. 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians is no longer in my Bible. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 2. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. To make a thought obedient to Christ, you have to demolish arguments. You have to demolish pretensions. You know what a pretension is? It's a claim as to who is right. In Christianity, that ought never exist. How do you take a thought captive and make it obedient to Christ? You recognize when it is contrary to the Word of God, and then you force the Word of God upon it. I'm scared that I might die, but the Word of God says that I'm the heir. I know I will not die. I force that thought upon the other one. I think that Mandy said something negative and it hurt my feelings, but the Word of God says she's made in His image and that I only have the right to build up and not tear down. I forced that thought to outweigh the other. That's how you take captive a thought and make it obedient. Hebrews 4.12 teaches you about the Word of God being living, active, judging the thoughts and motives behind the heart. The Word will come into you and teach you 
how to break down these arguments. It'll separate you to the point where it would separate bone from marrow. It will show you how to divide your thoughts. But first you have to weed and feed. You have to let the word come into you to get out the weeds. You know, you know you're in trouble when you're dwelling on something and you don't want to read your Bible. Or you're dwelling on something somebody says, hey, let's pray. And, and the very thought of it disgusts you. Don't act like you've never been there. I know you have. I've probably been there this week. We need to make it our goal to do what Philippians 4.8 says. And literally, we got two scriptures and we're closing. In Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You know, where does gossip fit into that? Where does slander of your brother, where does being critical of every other ministry and every other person you've ever come across fit into whatever is pure or noble? Think about such things. Can you even picture wearing that sign on you? Think about whatever is pure or noble. If anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Why you are gossiping about someone? I mean, that'd be like wearing a fool's hat, right? The court gesture. And yet we wear Christ. We are clothed with Christ and we do it. We ought not. 2 Corinthians 5.20 speaks of us as ambassadors of God, making God's appeal to the world. We cannot very well speak for God as His ambassador and be gossipers and slanders and throw weeds. God doesn't do it. The Word even speaks against slandering celestial creatures. Even the devil. Is that a, I mean, that's a thought. Jude speaks about ignorant beast. I heard a preacher one time call that a dumb donkey that would speak against celestial beings. You know, if you can't even slander the angels, how can you slander the heirs of salvation? 1 Peter 4.11 says to speak as if you were speaking the very words of God. Boy, what a tall order. When I talk to Claire and Caitlin and Julie and Mandy and all you guys, I am supposed to speak as if I were speaking the very words of God. Where does coarse joking fit into that? Where does making fun of people or tearing down people or talking about how so-and-so never seems to get it right, where does that fit into speaking the words of God? Or so-and-so really has no ability in that area. Or I don't know what they think they're doing. Where does that fit into speaking the words of God? Oh, or the charismatic one we do all the time. You know, they're really a flake. Oh, that was the Word of God, wasn't it? Come on. We're going to close with Ephesians 4. Now, don't let this message tear you down. I'm trying to make a point. I'm trying to impress upon you the need to speak godly things over one another. Ephesians 4. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God Forgave you. We need to feed ourselves with the Word. 
We need to weed out the things that are not useful for producing fruit. Your word will produce either good fruit or bad fruit. If you're kind and compassionate and forgiving, if you refuse to harbor any malice or wrath or slander, you will produce good fruit. If not, you yourself are in danger of growing and being choked out by the things you've allowed in your life. And God, what's even worse is you putting that in other people's lives for them to be choked out by it. We're not that kind. We don't want to be that kind. The sign above the door says perform out there what you've practiced in here. The reason we're going over these things in here is so that when we are outside of the church, we don't bring shame to the name of Christ by doing things that are not godly. There are people that are watching you all of the time and you are the only Bible they'll get to read. They're watching when you are pressed. They're watching when you're squeezed to see whether the will of God comes out of you or the same bad stuff that comes out of every other human being when they're squeezed. And we have to be different. The world must learn that we love the Father, that we do exactly what He's commanded. You know why? Because that's the example Jesus set for us even to the point of dying on a cross. We have to do it, and it can start with our speech. Don't say, God knows my heart, and every word that comes out of your mouth be wicked. He knows your heart, and you don't. So let's let our words reflect what we want to be in our heart. I even get to the point where I say things that in my heart are not necessarily true yet because I want them to be true. When I'm having a hard time with somebody, I speak good things about them. I pray for them. You know how hard it is to have somebody hurt you and you pray blessings in their life? You know, and it feels hypocritical, but before long it becomes the reality. You're speaking it into existence. You are pushing out the weeds so that there's good soil. Let's do that. Let's make that our practice. Sunday we're going to have an anointed service, and hopefully there will be some guests here. All the more important time to only let edifying words come out of your mouth. We have the opportunity to sow seed into people's lives, and it's the only reason we're placed here. It's the reason we're here. Stand up. Let's pray.